The Ringer MLB Show is brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network. If you enjoy our podcast, you may also enjoy some of our others, like The Watch, where every week the Ringer's Andy Greenwald and Chris Ryan, longtime friends and pop culture addicts, break down the latest in TV, movies, and music. Or maybe you're looking for some of the best NFL knowledge available. You won't get it from me, but you can check out the Ringer NFL Show, which features a rotating group of NFL experts, including the Ringer's Robert Mays, Kevin Clark, and Danny Kelly, as well as ex-players and coaches. You can subscribe to these shows and others on iTunes by going to iTunes.com slash The Ringer or find us wherever you get podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh and I'm a staff writer for TheRinger.com, joined as always by my fellow staff writer for The Ringer, Michael Bauman. Hey, Michael. Hello. I have draft banter. It's draft season already. Yeah, I know. When I asked you if you had anything to talk about, you said the draft and I double checked the calendar. It is not, in fact, June, so I'm worried, but proceed. Okay. So my former employer, D1Baseball.com, has just this week released its first top 100 college prospects list for the uh-huh. 2017 draft. We will talk about many of these names in the years to come, I'm sure. But one name on the list at number 59 is uh, Jacksonville University right-handed pitcher Michael Bauman. Wow. So, yeah. Spelled the same way? It's spelled the same way. So I've been huh. I've been aware of him. I'm not sure how he came across my path the first time, but uh, he was uh, he's pretty good, as you might, might have yeah. inferred from his inclusion. 59. On a, yeah. He's the 59th best uh, draft eligible college baseball player this year. So he's a, a six foot four right hander from Minnesota. Who, if you go on his college bio, already looks like he's older than I am, even <laughs> though he's probably about ten years younger. So this uh, got me thinking that you know Bauman is not that unusual a name. There have been eight Baumans to play professional baseball, according to Baseball Reference, including Buddy Bauman, who's in the majors right now. And I thought, well, what if there's who's the best baseball player named Ben Lindbergh? <laughs> so. Um, I I searched and there is no there's, it was me yeah there's never been a professional <laughs> baseball player whose last name is Lindbergh but no. there is one whose first name was Lindbergh Lindbergh Chipotin <laughs> common common first yeah. name <laughs> who, who played three seasons in the Sooner State League in the late 40s and early 50s so huh, the Sooner State League that's class D yes so not even sure he was better than I am but no. <laughs> it's certainly you adjust for advances in training and nutrition and stuff so is Lindbergh Chipotin alive he has a, a born date but no no death date and I well I looked up I I googled and there's a Lindbergh Chipotin who is old living in Florida somewhere. So maybe well, we should... there can't be multiple Lindbergh no. Chipotins. No. <laughs> maybe we should call up Lindbergh Chipotin one of these days. Yeah. Talk so, about his time in the D League. That would be probably the most shocking phone call he or any <laughs> anyone else in the United States has gotten in the Well, you know, he was born in nineteen twenty seven, right? Which is the year of Lindbergh. Oh so yeah. That explains it. That's how you get the first name Lindbergh is you're born in right after the the, the spirit of St. Louis. So he was the original Lindbergh baby. Congratulations. We now know for sure that you are the, <laughs> you are baseball's greatest Ben Lindbergh. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Are you rooting for or against Michael Bauman? I would think that you have some affinity for him because of the name. On the other hand, you don't want to get pushed down the Google rankings. Yeah. 
I think uh, it's hard. To, uh, OK, my ego is big enough that I've turned off customized <laughs> results and Google to see how how far down the list you have to go. I, I know I'm at least on the first page and there's an MLB.com writer named Mike Bauman with one. N. Yeah, right. That's so, man, you. So you've got a baseball player with your exact name yeah. and a baseball writer who is very close to your name. And I just have Lindbergh Chipotin. So I feel like I'm I'm doing better in the in the Google yeah. Google Wars. <laughs> All right. Well, I think you you stuck the landing on this draft segment. So I'm I'm sure everyone (laughs) enjoyed that. We will return to the topic in six months or so. All right. So our guest today, who takes up the entire rest of the episode, unless we do call Lindbergh Chipotin, is Sandy Alomar, whom we have wanted to talk to for quite a while. And he is the first base coach for the Cleveland Indians. But he's been in the game his whole life, of course. He is part of a family of good baseball-playing Alomars. He himself was a 20-year major leaguer, and he has been with two pennant-winning Indians teams and two World Series-losing Indians teams. But he has interesting stories. He was on great Indians teams of the 90s. So we wanted to talk to him about his history and the Indians' run to the World Series this year and a bit about clubhouses because he was a clubhouse presence. So we are going to talk to him about all of those things and we're going to welcome him in now. So Sandy, thanks for coming on. How are you doing? Pretty good by yourself. Good, thanks. So I'm curious about when your frame of mind changes after the playoffs end. How how soon do you start going from, oh man, we came really close to winning the World Series and having that be something that makes you disappointed to thinking, oh man, we came really close to winning the World Series and, and having that be something that you're happy about and, and proud about? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of difficult to to say when you really, really, your mind really change. Uh, I know when you're in the moment at, at that time, you're like, your focus is winning it. And when you come close, it's kind of like, uh, you feel like with this group of guys, we feel like we accomplish a lot. But it almost feels like uh, you go too far to lose, you know. And yeah. uh, that's uh, it's a it's very bittersweet, bittersweet. Very happy you're there, but at the same time, it'll take some time for the guys to get over it. It's gonna hurt a little bit. And there's been a lot of uh, discussion about what went on in the Cubs clubhouse during that rain delay. What was that like from your end? Well, we we had we had the the momentum at that time with that home run that Roger hit. Uh, when the rain came, and uh, I, I, you know, I, I, we were, you know, we were feeling good about ourselves. But at the same time, when you have a gap of 20 minutes due to a rain delay, anything can happen. So we, we didn't take anything for granted. It's just the fact that, uh, you know, I think Shaw had to sit there for a little bit and come back. I guess they, you know, sometimes the players' the adrenaline is not the same. But we were, we were still focused. We were still focused. They, they came back and uh, they scored some runs, so they, they, they pushed the envelope and they, they did a good job. I'm sure you've made the connection. I'm sure you've been asked about the connection probably too many times. But and this is a real offer <laughs> to start, too. Yeah, <laughs> right. Sorry to start on a depressing note, but how did this compare to the, the 1997 experience? It's way different. I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, that's a good, great question. I'll tell you that because I, I, I was asked that question and I say that when you're playing, when you're playing, it's a, you're so focused on your task and, and you are you are out there performing. So you're not as nervous. But when you're coaching, man, it's like you're, you worry about all the players. It's like, uh, you, it's like everybody's under your umbrella and you feel like you, you got to make sure you don't leave any, any, any stone unturned. 
But when you're playing, you, you want to work, be responsible of your actions and be responsible or, or focus and try to do the things you're capable of doing. And you can control that. But when you're coaching, you, just, you have to worry about 25 guys. So it's a little bit different. Uh, I was, it was more nerve-wracking for me as a coach than it was as a player. As a player, I used to, it's, even though I had a lot of fun coaching and a lot of fun telling players and helping them out, going through, it's, it's a little bit more nerve-wracking. Well, you mentioned that it felt like you had come too far to lose. And of course, this team went through a lot of adversity and really important players getting hurt and people wrote you off at that point. And then you managed to make it all the way to extra innings in Game 7 of the World Series. So how much do you attribute that to just, well, it's a it's a small sample and it's the playoffs and anything can happen? Or is it, well, we, we managed to compensate for our weaknesses? You know, we, we use the bullpen in different ways. We use Corey Kluber as much as we possibly could. Or, or how much is it the, the clubhouse aspect that was reported that losing those guys and being counted out to a certain extent kind of brought the team together? Yeah, I, I think I think uh, everything you mentioned there came to play. I I believe that uh, the choice for us to to go that far is excusing those guys. I mean, you have to. You have no choice. Those are your aces. Those are your horses. Those are the guys that got you in the position you were in to begin with, and you have to die with those guys. Uh, yeah, we were a little short-handed, completely. I mean, comparing to the Cubs, they they were. They had, you know, they were they had the abundance of guys that were healthier. I mean, not an excuse, but we had to, uh, in you know, to for us to go through Boston and to Toronto the way we were, it was a remarkable accomplishment. But with that being said, you're already in a World Series and you are three to one, and and not saying, you know, I'm not saying that we didn't do a good job. I'm saying is that if you go so far with uh, where you have accomplished so much with with less that. It's, it's demoralizing a little bit to to have a chance to you know close it down. You're three to one. You're going back home, and when you don't close it down like that, it's gonna hurt. You know, it's it's not that simple. But I said before to a lot of people is that I uh, rather be in ten World Series and lose them all, but I have the chance to win them. You know, <laughs> so yeah. like uh, it is a remarkable experience to be in a World Series. Very hard to do. Uh, having been in the World Series since '97, it's 2016. I had this opportunity. So, not as a player, but at least, at least now as a coach, a member of the Cleveland Indians, and I have a chance to be in the three World Series with the Indians. So, it's uh, not saying that I don't have the ring. It's not. I want it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So to pivot back to the the '90s a little bit, I, Ben's making me ask this early because I think he's worried I'm gonna just ask one question about this after another. Uh, but you had a lot of characters on on those teams between Albert Bell, young Manny Ramirez, Brian Giles. What was that clubhouse like? Oh man, I I I, I enjoyed our clubhouse in the '90s. You know, I think Grover did a good job of letting us police ourselves. We have players that that can police our, uh, themselves. Uh, I know that uh, there was. Plenty of things that people can talk about, things that Albert did and things of that sort, but uh, Albert came uh, prepared to play every single day. And I have a lot of deal of respect for Albert Bell because when he came to the ballpark, he, he was game on. You know, he was just focused on, 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 on playing, performing, and, and, you know, winning baseball games. But our, our locker room was, was a fun locker room. Everybody got along very well. We had a great chemistry. And, I think, you know, a tribute to that to Mike Hargrove. He did a, a pretty good job of letting us police ourselves and 
and, and giving us some freedom time, but he, he, he did a good job with that. Do you have a, a favorite story from, from those days? <laughs> one that you can there's tell on, on the podcast? There's a, there's a, there's a million stories. I'm going to tell you this one. This one, you know, anything that happened in there, I, I usually just leave it there, but this, this is a funny one. So we were, we were, we were, we were in April and, uh, and uh, it was cold. It was very cold outside. So when we go inside, the, the air condition in the locker room was uh, pretty cold. And uh, so Kenny Lofton comes in and, and, and uh, he goes, man, he's cold in here. So let me raise the thermostat. So he raised the thermostat. So as soon as uh, Kenny raised the thermostat, how the bells saw him watch, he watched him do it. And he goes, like, what are you doing? He goes, like, well, it's cold in here. So Albert comes back and lowers the temperature. <laughs> and they start arguing about it. I was like, no, come on, man. It's, it's, cold, in, it's cold outside. It's cold in here. So, man, you better get kind of used to it. So, like, Kenny went back and raised it again, and Albert came back and lowered it. Kenny came back and raised it again. So, Albert came back and lowered it, grabbed it back, and hit the thermostat. He said, go ahead and raise it right now. <laughs> so, so, basically, the whole thing is like, uh, I, I didn't even get an argument. You know, I just, like, my locker was underneath one of those vents. So, what I did was I put a a piece of tape out there, like a uh, uh, duct tape on top of the fence, so that way I didn't get hit straight in my back. Because he was kind of cold, but Cal was like, "Yeah, you better get used to the outside because that's where we're going to be playing at." <laughs> he was like, he was he was hilarious, but he was like, they got like two little kids out there fighting for a thermostat. <laughs> <laughs> does that stuff? I mean, when does that stuff become a problem, and when is it just you know it's it's okay? It's just you know playful stuff that happens in the clubhouse, but it doesn't affect the team on the field. Like, how do you know the hey, difference? Trust me, that was that was kind of like. You you never had guys throwing blows in the in the locker room. We never did that. It was more a playful thing and and uh King's Mouth Macho and stuff like that, but it was nothing to the point that they were gonna go fight about it. They were just like few words and stuff like that and that was it. I mean we we knew we knew nobody was gonna be we knew we were a family, but it's like little brothers, man. Sometimes you don't agree in things and that uh, you're gonna fight you're gonna fight for it, like, argue about it. Having spent the last 30 years in big league clubhouses, you know, you've probably got as good an appreciation as anybody for like the number of different things that environment has to be like it's a workplace, but it's also a bunch of young men, you know, together, you've got that brotherhood, you know, how do you balance all of all of those things that, you know, it has to be fun, but it also has to be professional. You know, how do you uh, try to get the environment to serve all those purposes? Well, yeah, it's a very good question when you have an amount of uh, athletes, everybody, you know, and especially in baseball, it's 25 players. You know, you have to make sure that everybody's in the same pace for the same task. And uh, that, But that's when, that's when you have guys, uh, for example, in our team like Napoli and Michael Brantley, they are they're good with their teammates and they can believe themselves. And they, like, Corey Kluber does the same thing. They, like, the guys... You want to have good players that can police the the locker room, you know, because those are the guys that really everybody going to watch and follow and listen. And we had the pleasure this year. I had an uh, it was an unbelievable experience watching Mike Napoli taking leadership of the locker room. He was a tremendous guy. He he uh, he pushes guys to play to the limit. He's a he's a grinder. He goes out there and play hard every day. And and you can see uh, players like Jason Kipnis and. And uh, Jose Ramirez and Francisco Lindor out there playing hard every day. So like, it, it was fun. It was fun to watch the locker room and the chemistry. But you know, those guys go out. They, you know, they they go eat together in the road trips. They it, it becomes a family and a bond. And but at the same time, uh, you just gotta take the field and, and, and give it all you got. 
And 10 years or 15 years ago, you were that guy in the clubhouse or or one of those guys. And, you know, you were a six-time All-Star, of course, in your younger days. But then you sort of had this second stage of your career where you left Cleveland when you were 35 and you played for another seven seasons and played for five teams over that time, even though your stats, at least on the surface, weren't the same as they had been in your prime as a player. So... How was that role made clear to you? Like, you know, you are the veteran, you are the mentor. Was that something that teams came to you and said, hey, we need you to take on this role? Or did you just sort of do it instinctively? Well, I think it's, yeah, the word goes around. Uh, when, I, when I was in Cleveland, I, I know that, the, you know, when the minor league catchers were coming up, I took every single guy that came in spring training, everybody that uh, I felt like I have ability, and took him under my wing. I mean, I was not a jealous guy per se, nothing. I mean, I, I try to help every single player if I could. I, fe- I felt like the leadership role, uh, role fell in my lap. Uh, and I, one of the things was Mike Harper really helped me out, embrace it. But the other the other thing was, it's, I, I kind of led by example. I learned that from my father when he played and stuff like that. You know, just go out there and play, play the game the right way. And, you know, usually if you perform well and you play the game the right way, people are going to follow you. I think that the word got out that, uh, you know, this guy's good with his teammate, whatever, and then I was able to extend my career due to that because, you know, I, I went through a lot of injuries, and I played a lot when my, when I was banged up and really affected my stats. But besides that, if you do things the right way and you can and you can infect others the right way, uh, I think a lot of teams look for guys like that. And, and uh, uh, it's not always the number, but it's the intangibles you bring to the table that – you can help your team or that particular team to embrace winning and, and go further in, in, in the season. So uh, I think this is really by example. You know, you go out there and play hard, do things the right way, uh, never disrespect people, and I think you're going to go a long way. And do those qualities travel with a player from team to team? Like you were traded at the trade deadline twice, and you know by the time you you left Cleveland, I mean you had been – I think one of the oldest hitters on the team at that point, you had been with the team for over a decade. So you have a certain status there just from having been there so long and being so successful. And then you go to a new team where you're the new guy. Can you just plug in a player and he'll bring the same leadership qualities on a new team? Or does it depend on your history with the team? Listen, one of the things that I I embrace right away and uh, I kind of like, sit back and look and evaluate the locker room. I'm not like, like when I went to the white, that's not my team. You know, I, I, I was not there plugged in to be the guy, you know, there was guys there that uh, like Paul Conerco and, and you have Carlos Lee, Maglio Donas, one of those guys were the leaders of that team. So that's, that's their team. You know, I, what, 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 what I, whether I help those guys to, to uh, become better leaders, maybe, I don't know, but I, they embraced me. They embraced me when I came in. It was a great time that I had with the White Sox when I was there. We had a pretty good locker room, uh, but that was their time to lead. I was just there to help. Uh, and and uh, you have to realize things. You just can't you know, walk into the locker room and say, yeah, I'm the guy. <laughs> so it doesn't work like that. And and, uh, and and Paul Comerica did a good job of that, man. He was like a quiet leader. He'd go out there and play the game uh, the right way, play it hard, and, and everybody follows suit. And, you know, he was, he was, I respect him a lot. In the in the course of you know just doing a little bit of reading before uh, we talked to you, I came across uh, an article from right after you were traded to the Colorado Rockies, and they said that 
one of the things they hoped you would bring to the team was you would mentor a 23-year-old shortstop named Juan Uribe, who is himself now one of those veteran guys, leadershipy guys who gets passed around. And they talked about, you know, your work in Cleveland with guys like Bartolo Colon and Charles Nagy, who's now a pitching coach. And like, so what is it like to see players that you've watched grow up turn into the veteran presence that you were, uh, you were yourself when, you know, when you played with them? Oh, it's, it's a joy to watch guys. Like I, when I went to the Rockies, uh, I, 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 I used to see Juan Rivera alone all the time. And, uh, I, I remember one time, I think we went to Pittsburgh on a road trip, and I said, well, what are you, you know, let's go out to eat. So after that day, what do we, you know, we embrace each other. Uh, we hung around all the time, and, you know, I kind of like talking about baseball, talking about life and how things work. And and uh, I remember uh, through the years, and we reconnected again with uh, with the White Sox where in 2004, I think, we reconnected with the White Sox five. No, 2005, I was a Ranger. He, he won the World Series with the White Sox. But we reconnected uh, again, and he talked all the time about, hey, you know, this guy helped me out, and this guy helped me out. So the same thing with Adrian Gonzalez when we were with the Rangers 2005. I read an article that he said that uh, I learned a tremendous amount of things about how to handle myself from Sandy Alamo. I'm like, oh, okay, like, great. But I, uh, yeah, we, I used to sit next to the, uh, and with the Rangers when Adrian Gonzalez was a, a, a rookie. He was going up and down to the minor leagues about, and I used to talk to him about patience and, uh, the amount of times, you know, it's very frustrating to go up and down to the minor leagues, trust me. But hey, man, I, I spent six years in the minor leagues without going to the big leagues. So like, it's kind of hard to, for somebody to tell me how hard it is because I, I just softened all my options to, so I don't have to go back down. So, you know, things like that. But I, uh, uh, I, I kind of understood. Uh, you, have, you have to put yourself in the player's shoes and, and give them comfort, mental comfort, and, and help guys like that. And uh, but those guys really appreciate it. You know, another another guy that felt uh, really appreciated was uh, Julian Tavares. He was uh, when he came here, he didn't know any English, and and uh, I bought him, I bought him a set of uh, cassettes. Then he used to be in cassettes, so he used to audio, you know, listening Spanish, English, and he got that cassette, and he, those, I mean, those cassettes, because there were more than one, and he was listening and learning a little English, and then I heard him in the interview saying, like, yeah, I learned English from Cindy Alomar. I say, well, you didn't learn English from me, because I'm still learning. <laughs> you, you learned it, you got your basics from those cassettes that I got you, but he was, he was tremendous, he was awesome. And how can you tell? Because, I mean, there are, you know, as many different personality types as there are ballplayers in the big leagues. How can you tell which younger players are the kind of guy that you have to go take out to dinner or the ones you have to babysit or the ones that you need to give a little bit of space? Is that something that you can tell relatively quickly? Yeah, you know, like I said, you know, like when I went to the White Sox, you just sit there and you start looking at guys and evaluating. You can see which guys are more open, which guys are more... Uh, introvert, extrovert, and and you just like go well. Maybe this guy needs this, this guy needs that, or it, it takes some time. It, you you gonna tell. I mean, if you really look at people and you if you really evaluate people and you sit there and you go well, you know this guy could use some help. You you gonna tell. I mean, if you just go about your business and you say, well, I'm here to play uh, three hours of baseball and go home, then. You're never going to tell, but if you're willing to help other people to get better in their career and to go ahead and, and to pass it forward for other generations, 
So when they say, say, well, I learned this from this guy, this guy learned it from this guy, then, you know, you're going to tell. How does your ability to help set the tone in the clubhouse differ now that you're a coach? You have this new status and authority that you didn't have when you were a player, but you're also sort of separate from the team in a way. So can you intervene in the same way that you could with a player or is your role different now? No, our role is a little bit different now. You know, you're you're a coach. You're there to uh, prepare the players to, to, to be the best they can be on the field. You know, physically and mentally, I, uh, you do have a, a, a track record with the organization and, uh, you know, you, you know, I used to, I used to play there for a long time. So there's a, there's a lot of respect between the players and myself, but I, I don't, I don't engage and I don't step on people's toes to this point. You know, now I'm just more like, you know, helping, helping Tito or helping the organization, uh, bringing a winning, winning baseball team, but I'm not, I'm not, I know what, you know, it's not what it used to be when I was a player. I, I feel like I have more input into, into things. Now I'm a coach. I just trying to get guys ready and, and prepare themselves on whoever I have to work with. Uh-huh. All right. We're going to take a very quick break so I can tell you about our sponsor and then we will be back with more from Sandy. The Ringer Podcast Network is now available on TuneIn. And while you can listen to every episode on the TuneIn audio app for free, TuneIn is giving listeners 20% off its premium subscription for a limited time. You can catch the home calls of your favorite sports team at home or on the road. That's every play, every team, every game. So if you love sports, you'll love TuneIn Premium. Plus, with TuneIn Premium, not only will you get to hear your favorite sports team live, you'll also get great commercial-free music from around the world and unlimited access to every audiobook in the library, live or on demand. So go to TuneIn.com for Forward slash the ringer to get TuneIn Premium at 20% off. Download the TuneIn app and subscribe today. So things have gotten a little bit easier for Spanish-speaking players. You know, there has to be a translator in the clubhouse now. There has to be a Spanish-speaking coach at every minor league level. But that was not the case when you played. So how valuable was it to have a, a bilingual player like you who could sort of serve that purpose when, when no one else was? Well, I, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm very, uh, you know, I came growing up in Puerto Rico, you get, you know, you get to go to take English classes and more and more advanced English classes. And I had an opportunity to come here to watch my dad play. So I, I, uh, by any means, I'm still learning. Trust me. I mean, I'm not a, I don't speak perfect English and, and, uh, I'm still learning, but the San Diego Padres, when I was growing up in the minor leagues, they had English classes also, a little bit more advanced. And I used to go to the classes, and and it, I don't think it was mandatory, but if you wanted to succeed, if you wanted to communicate as a catcher, I felt that there was the need to, for me, not not to only learn English, but to learn the baseball lingo. You know, they they had special people coming in and and use their baseball lingo. You know, when so when pitchers tell you high heat and stuff like that, you know, when you come out from from a Latin country, you don't know what the heck high heat means, you know. <laughs> so so you gotta learn that baseball lingo is very important, you know. So like a lot of people don't understand that, but we had we had guys that used to write down all the baseball lingos and then they they were teaching the Latin guys what it what it meant. Yeah, that was something that I remember reading about Mike Piazza catching those Dodgers staffs that had five starting pitchers from five different countries who spoke four different languages. So he had to, you know, learn how to how to translate all that. How long did that take to to pick up? Well, that that, that was very impressive. Mike did that, but I uh, just already had a foundation from school in Puerto Rico. I it didn't take me that long, really. I mean, like 
uh, it took me a year or whatever uh, of classes to really get really advanced, but completely solid. You know, like I say, I'm still I'm, st- I'm still learning. Uh, but it take it, t- it took me like a like a year like a year to really start, you know, pra- uh, getting ahead of myself and say, okay, I know what that means. I know what uh, he's trying to say. Uh, you know, it took me a year. Uh, other guys are going to take it more. If you don't practice, you know, it's going to take you longer, but you just got to maintain yourself. Watch, read, you know, reading is going to help you, whatever. What Like a lot of people don't have to read books, but you can read magazines. You know, whatever interests you, whatever you like. If you like sport, read about sports, and that's going to help you to spell words and to, wow, look at this word, how it spells. What would that mean? And and don't be afraid to ask. Even if they make fun of you, that's the problem in their past. It's like that guys, you know, didn't understand that we were trying to learn and, and they used to make fun of you. But if you didn't care, I didn't, I, I, I didn't care, man. I said, either make fun of me, whatever you want. I just want to know what I say right there. So the, at the end of the day, they, when they realize that you're really trying to learn, they, they help you out. And because so much of baseball can be quantified and we can say, well, this was worth this many wins and that was worth that many wins, there's always this impulse to try to do the same thing for the clubhouse and and for guys who bring this value of leadership. So could you give us any kind of concrete examples of how having that clubhouse leader, having the Mike Napoli or having the Sandy Alomar can directly affect a team's winning percentage. You know, if if that guy's not there, then this happens, and then the team doesn't win as many games as it would have otherwise. Well, you, that you have to take that by year. I can, I, I mean, I can, I'm sure that if those guys are not there, somebody else is going to evolve. I mean, it's, it's a lot easier, it's a lot comfort when other guys don't have to step up because they say, "Oh, we got this guy here." Which is great, and and Mike, because you know, I, I just giving you an example with Mike Napoli. You know, he has time in the big league. He's been in postseason. He's been in the winning team. So when other guys see that, they go like, "Wait a minute, this guy has something special that he's doing that everywhere he goes, his aura put the team in the playoff." Same thing with Juan Uribe. You know, Juan Uribe has been in the postseason, uh, whatever how many years in the last uh, his career. I mean, he's been there a lot. So those guys look at those guys and say, "What is it about? They want to investigate that." But uh, once once they experience that and they see what it's all about, somebody can evolve. You know, so if we don't have any of those guys, somebody got to evolve and say, okay, I take the range of being a leader or you're going to fall in your lap you know, automatically. But without being said, that brings responsibility. you got to go out there and you got to show your teammates that you play hard. You know, you don't take days off. I mean, whether you perform or not. I'm, I'm not saying that you have to hit 300 to be a leader, you know. You just got to go out there and say, listen, play the game the right way every day. Give your manager and your staff an opportunity, your city or whatever. Be proud of wearing that name in front of you and go out there and perform. And if you can't perform to the level that due to an injury, say something. But if you if you, if you you go out there and you embrace uh, playing banged up and you do the best you can, then you do it like that. But those, those teammates of yours got to see that you go out there and doing, doing everything the right way. No, no halfway just doing it the right the right right way. So even though how the team gets along can be very important and you can look back and say well we had good chemistry or we had bad chemistry is it possible to predict in advance can you look ahead to the 2017 Indians and say well we're going to have a, a group of guys that really gets along or do you just have to wait and see really and and it depends on how the team does and a bunch of other factors that are are hard to tell in advance. Um, I think I think we are, we already developed that culture. It's not chemistry. You, you gotta build culture first. I mean, culture is the most important thing. 
chemistry comes out of the culture to me, to me. Once you have the culture, it means that you have the foundation of players that is going to create good chemistry. And everybody says, oh, chemistry is about winning. Yeah, it is about winning. I, I, I mean, you got to win to have great chemistry, but you can create chemistry if you have good culture, even if you don't win. It's just uh, how things, how things, if you play the game the right way, you know, if you if you go out there and perform there and do the best thing you can, and then it's not just the chemistry, then it's the talent is not there or, or something was wrong. But, but if things go smoothly in the locker room, I mean, that's a little chemistry to me. I mean, I guess you have to uh, be focused on, uh, on being the same plan or performance of what you're going to do. And, and I think that uh, Terry, uh, Terry Francona has done a great job, you know, developing that culture. And our coaching staff are in the same page. So we have, uh, we have a, a group of guys that I'm sure that if we get injected with one or two guys, our, our culture will still be the same. You know, you just mentioned Terry Francona, you've talked about Mike Hargrove, and, you know, you've played and coached for a pretty diverse group of managers between them and Ozzie Guillen. So, you know, what have you picked up from all those uh, different managers? Yeah, you know, through the years, it's like the preparation is insane. Um, I think the, <laughs> the Tito shows the ball for like 1130 or 12 o'clock. I, like, I don't even know why he goes to the hotel or to, to his apartment <laughs> because he's in the ball for the entire day, like. Well, all he does at the hotel is eat ice cream. So, from what we've heard, is <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, you know, he, they, those guys have passion for the game. They enjoy it. Uh, uh, I have a, a great deal of respect when I play for Grover because he was like a father figure to me, and and uh, he pushed me, and and uh, he gave us he gave us freedom. Same thing is here with Tito. He does, you know, he let the players do their thing and and just come in and play hard. Uh, he let the coaches coach. You know, everybody had to do their homework, and then you put it together and you go out there. If something's wrong, then he'll talk to you. But he basically just lets you play, man. He just, you know, they, he knows the matchup very well. He knows, you know, he prepares himself on that with the front office, with the scouts and scout report. He's, he's very, very darn good about it. And and uh, and let the players play and believe in them. And, and then that that goes through the locker room. He just just pass around. So it's a good way. And I mean, you know, I had an opportunity to play with many managers. Also, Gideon was, I was, you know, I, I had a great time with Ozzy because Ozzy will tell you the things right in your face. He didn't care. You know, like, he, he'll tell you, man, you really stunk to say stuff like that. So, but <laughs> but that was cool to me. I I didn't, you know, you can't get very uh, sensitive about what a guy. It's different ways to get the guy's best performance, whether it's yelling at you, whether it's like pampering you. And and you have to evaluate, I imagine as a coach, as a player, which guys you can push, which guys you are going to cave if you push him too much. But Ozzy was a fun guy to play with because he was hilarious, the things that he did, you know, uh, and, and the, the way, you know, and, and many people get different results different ways. So it's not just one way to do it. It goes to show you that there's a diversion uh, sport you can do it a different way and you and you might be, you might be able to win but it so depends what kind of person personality you have you've been around ball players your whole life have you ever seen anyone chew gum and sunflower seeds and tobacco or whatever else is in there the All way at the that, same time <laughs> the way that Terry Francona yeah, does like, I, I have never seen that before and <laughs> and it's funny it's funny you say that because uh, in Cleveland we had that 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 suite next to the our dugout, 
and there's a plexiglass right there. And, and you know, those are rental suites, and people, there are different people coming there for every game. And you see these people, when Tito's standing out there and moving his feet back and forward, side to side like that, and going through that gum, and going through. The kids have to unwrap hundreds of gum for him. That way he don't have to unwrap himself and leave all that mess down there. But it's funny because when they when he merged tobacco with the gum, when he, like, put it together, then uh, he shoots it off, like, for three minutes, and he throws him in the ground, and, and he leaves what we call Tito bombs. So <laughs> when you walk in, when you walk into the up to the field, that those things get stuck into your shoe, and you go running, and you feel like you have, like, what the heck do I have under my shoe? It's like a, it's like a pillow. It's like, <laughs> it's a Tito bomb. For the fans that are, there's the fans that are next to the dugout, and look at the plexiglass and see all these things on the floor, and they go, oh, man, they call the other people, come check this out. And, and they're all taking pictures, and, and, and they're looking at it, and they're trying to figure out what the heck is that. And then when they, when they realize what it is, it's tobacco with gum, then they start laughing. But it is a, it is a, it is a, it's a, it is funny to watch the way it is. But it's, it's a habit, you know. He does it, and you know, it's, you know, if you can, if you can win World Series and being in postseason, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> So you know, you've interviewed for various managerial jobs yourself. You know, you were the interim manager briefly of the Indians. Is that still an ambition of yours? Oh yeah. If, uh, every every coach you coach at the major league level should have ambition in managing. I'm the one. The difference that I have is that I don't go pursue like I don't go calling teams. I I don't promote myself. I I feel like if somebody uh, feels like they can interview me, that's fine. I. I am pretty much uh, done everything that I have to do with, as a coach. I love coaching. If somebody want to give me an opportunity, that's fine. But I'm not going to call people and say, okay, I, I need you to interview me. I'm not, I'm not a type of guy. I've never been a type of guy. I, uh, I enjoy what I do. I enjoy uh, working with my catchers, working with runners, and uh, breaking down pitching and catching. And, and uh, I, I would love to manage one day, but – that's the way it goes, you know. It's, it's not uh, it's not the easiest thing to get, so uh, you just gotta be patient, you know. Keep knocking on that door. And you know, one thing that's might have made that a little bit harder, and I'm certainly not asking you to call anybody out specifically, but you know, there's been a trend for younger, inexperienced ex players to be getting managerial jobs. You know, perhaps in front of somebody like yourself who has a decade of experience, speaks Spanish, can work with both pitchers and catchers. You know, has that been frustrating at all to to watch other people sort of jump the line? Um, but you know. Everything right now is about relationships, you know, when it comes to managerial job. It's not like, a, it's not necessarily uh, the best guy that's going to get the job. It's the best guy that they feel that they have a, they can have a relationship with because they have something in the past they can communicate better. But the, the relationship is huge, you know, like uh, with, uh, with, uh, with uh, communicating stats and stuff like that. And, how the guy's going to absorb all that. I'm not saying that, that I, I won't do the same, but I'm saying it's like they get, they got to have to know me first. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So if you look at the trend that's going on right now, you're going to see there's a lot of guys that they have, they have in one, one way, shape, or form, they have a connection with a general manager from their past. So you're going to get guys. For example, Hayes in, in, in Arizona, we got Lavulo. They were in Boston together. So, they have a communication. They have a, a path. They have a, 
a track record together, and that's that's one of the that's one of the things that if you if you never if you're not gonna manage, uh, uh, hire a real veteran manager like Tito or uh, Dusty Baker, uh, then you're gonna hire somebody that you have great communication skills with, or you have a past, or or they're real good with uh, with uh, with sabermetrics, or that's that's what I'm gathering in all this. But that, that's not a big deal. I mean, it can be frustrating, but you know, you just gotta look past that and and be happy for other people. I'm very happy for other people, to be honest with you. I'm happy for guys to get opportunities, and because I don't, that 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 only can help me at, at the end. So let's see what happens. Maybe that'll work out for you, since it seems like every new GM over the past couple of years has worked for the Indians in the past. What if you is that is that a problem you know if you if you hire people you know and you've kind of have a close relationship with uh, you know there's been a lot of talk about the lack of diversity in front offices i mean teams tend to be very white at the upper levels and so maybe that means that you know you're less likely to have a a close relationship with someone who doesn't have the same background that you do and and that would make it harder for for someone like you you know, I never thought of that, but you know, if you are, then uh, you your eyes are more open than mine. <laughs> I uh, you still can build, you know, you know, you still can build a relationship with a with a person that uh, is not your same race. You know, I uh, you just you know, if you if you give people respect and 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 they respect you back and you can communicate how to prepare yourself for a game. We have a very unique organization in, in the term of. Uh, the front office engage a lot with the coaches. You know, we yeah. we engage back and forth. We engage a lot. I mean, they come down, we go up. You know, actually, we don't go up there, but they come down. We talk stats, we talk uh, performance, we talk uh, videos. You know, I saw this, and they ask you a lot of questions. They ask you for opinions. They ask you for suggestions, and you give it to them. And then, then you know, you it's a constant communication, and and that, that's the culture they have. They have. Uh, you know, Chris Antonetti and Mark Shapiro have uh, established in Cleveland when he was here. It's just like constant communication. So, you know, that's probably why and we have success doing so. I mean, that we haven't won the World Series, but we have been, you know, a competitive team with a low payroll. So when other teams see that, they, 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 they say, well, wait a minute. If those people are going to the World Series with a $90 million payroll, what is it that they're doing? So... That little spreads around, you know, you start, you know, we got there far now in Minnesota. He was a uh, part of the player development, uh, overseas baseball operation with us, which he was a bright guy when he was one of the guys that I talked to the most when it comes to, uh, fundamentals and, and, uh, stats wise, uh, he was, he was, he was remarkable. He's going to be, he's going to be missing Cleveland very far because he was very good. So, uh, See the the way they infect the front office. They they get these other young kids. Those are the kids you have established the chemistry with because those are the kids that one day might be GM somewhere. So those are the relationships that you just try to establish. You know, even though but 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 you gotta be genuine. It's not gonna be oh you gonna be a GM one day. Let me talk to you. Hold on, come on here. <laughs> it doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. You just gotta like generally you know uh, talk like that. Uh, but uh, hey, man, I, I enjoy the game. I enjoy it. Uh, the opportunity they have given me here in Cleveland has been remarkable. Whether I'm a manager or not, I I really have embraced this, this organization to a different level because 
I care about the city. I care about the organization. I care about what their fans, what they, uh, what they want to accomplish. And I, and I really do want to bring a championship to them. And so bad, and, and you know, so bad that you know, that's why it hurts to me when you make it so close and you don't get it because I can feel their pain, man. I can feel it. Yeah. So that was going to be my my last question about the front office relationship with the the coaching staff. And so what is the key there? What would you recommend if a front office wants to have a good relationship with its coaches and, you know, have input on all of the decisions and use stats and come up with information? What's the best way to do that without then kind of alienating the coaches and making them feel like they're meddling or interfering too much? Our our final say is is Tito's here. Tito... Tito runs a team. I mean, he he runs a lineup, and and, and he did. I mean, they do. They those guys give him suggestions. I mean, I'm not saying we're not. A, I don't think we are an organization. I mean, that that they hired that guy for a reason. I mean, yeah. They're not gonna mandate to him. This is the order. This is, this is not our team. Our team is not like that. He, he if we have we have guys that they can go down there and say, okay, uh, I don't think this guy can sustain this, or this guy cannot do that for a long period of time. I think this, my my opinion is to for him to bench him today. It's not like that. They give you advice and they tell you guys uh, who they're better off, who they, uh, what you know, what what they really stats and the track record shows, head to head matchups and stuff like that. So so you can give him an idea when you have to make changes on the fly during the game. But at the end of the day, Tito's the one to run the team. Our team is not run like that. Our team is like they let they let, they let the manager do it making his, his decision. He does a good job at it, so they leave, they, they leave, they leave him alone. But uh, us, we got to prepare to give information to him, you know. So if, if Tito come and ask me something about a pitcher for another team, I got to be ready to tell him. I said, this guy does this, this, and that, and the catcher does this. So, like, if he asks me, hey, can we steal it back against this guy? I say 100% not, or or uh, we the only guys that can do are these three guys, or, or these guys can't, you know. So you, we put all that together uh, with information that the front office come in with videos that I watch and all that, so we put all that plan together. And and when Tito comes in, then he'll like he'll ask the questions. But but at the end of the day, his decision is his. He 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 runs the club. All right. Well, it was a lot of fun watching the the Indians this year. The playoff run was great. We're sorry for you that it ended the way it did, but it was uh, still pretty remarkable that you got to that point. And it was really great to talk to you. Thanks, Andy. Yeah, uh, thank you very much for having me. And I thank you. Uh, we disappointed a lot of people, and, and it's hard to say a lot of people lost a lot of money in Vegas all the way to the end. <laughs> That's good. All right, man. Thank you very much. All right, thanks. thanks. All right, so that will do it for today. I know you were hoping for more Albert Bell dirt, but you have to respect the sanctity of the clubhouse. I think I'm just going to go, like, I'm going to drive across the country and track down every member of the 95 Indians and just <laughs> stick a recorder in their face. of being Albert Bell's teammate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you know who was on that 95 Indians team? It was Oral Hershiser. It could be a literal oral history. thought you were going to say Lindbergh Chipotle. No. <laughs> nice pun. Yeah, thank All you. All right, so that will do it. We will be back next week. 